listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Would you rise for the reading of the word? All right. So to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it as it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is who I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by the promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies that there is more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. So should I preach this week's sermon or next week's sermon? Uh, Matt's one of those guys uh, that we're affirming later today as an elder, um, but he lost my vote. No, um, <laughs> we'll do this week's sermon. So. When my uh, 10-year-old daughter told us that she was trying out for more of an upfront role in this year's Christmas musical, we were thrilled when she landed the part of one of the kids in the Christmas family. She's, she's playing a little girl in the family, which is appropriate, and she's got parents and siblings and, and a whole character arc and everything. This, this is awesome and, and so fun. Uh, she was telling us the other day about what practices have been like. She came home and said, Natalie's my mom and Tommy's my brother, and we get to pretend to put ornaments on a Christmas tree. We have to pretend because we don't actually have the Christmas tree yet or any of the ornaments or presents. So we pretend and we pretend to put on the ornaments on the Christmas tree and Tommy pretends to throw them to me and he pretends to throw them too high and then I pretend to jump really high and I pretend to catch them and it's just really fun pretending, which we thought was, was so cute. Um, so I asked her if she had ever pretended to be Godzilla um, and stomp on all the presents and break the ornaments and knock the tree over and eat the other people in the play and breathe fire on everything. Um, because when I was a boy child, I tended more towards that side of the spectrum. And she just rolled her eyes at me and said, Dad, it's not that kind of a story. Now, for the sake of being a dad, I suggested she give it a try at the next practice and uh, see what happens. And I also pretended not to see her point, you know, as, as a dad should. Uh, but she was actually making a rather profound point. She said, if you know what kind of a story you're in, then you know who you are. If you know what kind of a story you're in, then you know how you should behave. You know what fits that story. If you think you're Godzilla, but you're actually in a Christmas musical, well, then your behavior isn't going to match the story. Who you think you are isn't going to match the story. Put it, put it the other way. You don't know what you should do if you don't know what story you're part of. Or to say it again, the story you think you're in decides who you think you are. 
The story you think you are in decides who you think you are. Because if you, you don't know who you are, you don't know where you've come from, how you got here, why you're here, what you should do, where you're going, or why it matters, if you don't know what story you're in, what story you're part of. It's impossible to know where you've come from, how you got here, what you should do, why, or where you're going, and why it matters if you don't know what story you're part of. So do you know what story you're part of? That's the question this morning. That's the question this morning that takes us to Galatians chapter 3. If, if the story you think you're in decides who you think you are, well, what Paul is doing in Galatians chapter 3 is trying to restory these Gentile believers in Jesus. He's trying to bring them into a bigger story than they thought they were part of so that they will know who they are, where they came from, how they got here, what they should do, where they're going, matters. So what's your story? What story are you part of? Uh, Paul is shifting gears a little bit in his, from his earlier argument. All of chapter 3 has been one big argument. As he gets here to verse 15, he says, let me give you a human example. I'm going to use an analogy to sort of give you a framework for understanding what I'm talking about. So verse 15, he says, uh, to give a human example, brothers, uh, even with a man-made covenant. Now, a man-made covenant, we would call it a will, the last will and testament. Our will uh, my wife's brother, the one that is allergic to cats, uh, gets all of our cats if we die. Uh, that's what happens when you pick on your sister growing up. And there's nothing he can do about it. He has no legal right to refuse all four of our cats. Because as Paul says here in verses 15 and 16, even with a man-made covenant, even with a will, no one can annul it or add to it once it has been ratified. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. You can't make it void. Once you've signed on the dotted line... You've decided who among your family and who among your descendants gets the inheritance, the assets and the liabilities that you have accrued during your life. Now, Paul's saying, okay, hold that idea in your mind of a will, of a man-made covenant, and let's apply it to what I've been talking about here. So verse 16 says, now the promises, were, think about the promises of Abraham like they're a last will and testament that God is giving to him. Say, so, hey, Abraham, I am willing these promises to you. This promise that you will have an uncountable worldwide family, uh, this promise that that family will one day inherit and rule over the entire world and, and will be the people who, through whom I, I set the world back right. That promise, he says, I'm making to you and I'm making to your offspring. Paul says, think about that like a, like a will, like a last will and testament. Now, a will has a beneficiary. Who's the beneficiary? Well, he says there in verse 16, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. And when Paul says Abraham and his offspring, he's echoing God's promises, what specifically God has said in Genesis 12 and 13 and 17 and 24, all places where God promised that Abraham and his offspring would receive the promised inheritance. Now, take a closer look at that word offspring, because uh, Paul does. 
Now, he makes a point here to say the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, plural, referring to many, but it says, and to your offspring, singular, referring to one, that one being Messiah. Now, depending on the translation you are reading from, you may have a different word there for offspring. The Greek word behind it is literally seed. And seed, the way Greeks use the word and the way we use the word, could have both a sort of a singular sense of like a seed and a collective sense of that seed and all of the potential life that comes from it. We use the word seed the same way when, you know, if you talk about a a sunflower seed, for instance, you plant the sunflower seed, you get a sunflower, you get a whole bunch more seeds, you use those seeds to plant more sun, you know, the yield just keeps increasing. The way uh, Paul is using the, the word here uh, and the promise to Abraham is saying, okay, think of it like a genealogy with Abraham and Sarah at the top, and Abraham's seed is that family cascading down. Abraham's seed or Abraham's offspring or Abraham's family is those people who are cascading down from that. So what I've, I've circled the word offspring all three times. It shows up in verse 16 in my scripture journal and written off to the side, family line. Family line, because it has that collective sense of everybody descended from. So the promises were made to Abraham and to his family line. It does not say to his family lines, as if it's implying that there's multiple ways you can trace your lineage back to Abraham, but through his family line, which is the Messiah. The only way to legitimately trace your lineage back to Abraham, Paul is arguing, is through Messiah. Not through blood, but through Jesus. Now, the point of making this clear is to say there's a will which cannot be added to, subtracted from, or made empty or void of its legal power, that will has a beneficiary, which is Abraham and his single seed, his offspring, which is Messiah, Christ, and where Paul's eventually going to argue down at the end of the chapter, and all who are in Messiah, all who are in Jesus. So there's a will, it can't be annulled, there's a beneficiary, it's the Messiah, and that is very, very, very different from the law. Okay, so verse 17, this is what I mean. He says, keep, keep all that, the will and all of that up here. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant, the, the will previously ratified by God. It cannot make the promise void. It can't empty the will of its power to give the inheritance to Abraham's single family line, which is encapsulated in the Messiah. So Paul is basically saying here, look, you don't, you don't get into Abraham's family by going through Torah, by going through that law keeping. That can't get you in. That came later. That came with less power. That came with less authority. The will and the beneficiary goes through Messiah. If you are in Messiah, you are in the family, whether you grew up keeping Torah or not. Now, the rhetorical force, and the reason he's making this argument, almost the same argument over and over again, uh, is he's, he's saying to these Gentile believers in Jesus, these ones who are being pressured into keeping Torah, right? They're being told like, hey, you came to Jesus, that's great, but you need Jesus and full 
into what it means to be Jewish in order to know that you are righteous, that you are set apart, you are acknowledged by God as a member of Abraham's family. And Paul's saying, no, you, you don't trace your lineage back through Torah, you trace it straight around Torah through the Messiah to Abraham. If you put yourself under that Torah law, you are invalidating everything the Messiah did by taking the curse of that law onto himself and redeeming us from it. He says, that's not the good news message I preach to you. The good news message is that you are folded into Abraham's family because of Messiah, not because of keeping the law. Okay, so that message is ringing in their ears, and Paul anticipates their immediate next question uh, right there in verse 19. He says, you know, I can hear you kind of saying, if the law, if the whole process of keeping Torah couldn't ever deliver on the promise that God made to Abraham and only ever cursed those who were under it, then why in the world did God give the law in the first place? Like, what was the point of the law? That whole big question he puts in just a few words. Why then the law? If you've got Abraham and a will and he's the beneficiary, you get there through Messiah, then what was the point of adding the law? And then he, he makes it super clear with a short phrase that no one agrees on what it means. So, right, this is one of those places in Paul where you're like, could you actually take a few more verses and explain what you're talking about? So I'm going to give you my interpretation, but keep in mind, there's people who agree with me, people who disagree with me, and people who disagree with the people who disagree with me. So um, why then the law? Well, it was added because of transgressions. Super clear. It was added because of transgressions. Now, the word transgressions is a fairly particular word. It means law-breaking. So the law was added because of law-breaking. That doesn't really clear it up. Uh, Because where there is no law, you can't break the law. So it's not that the law was added because people were already breaking the law. It's got to mean something other than that. The way I take this verse and what I take it to be saying is, instead of because of, I think the words in order to define fits better. The law was added in order to define law-breaking, in order to define what exactly transgressions are. During one of the last weeks of our summer sabbatical, I rented a car and drove through four countries in four hours. Every country I was in, I knew that there were probably uh, rules of the road of which I was ignorant. Um, So I just did my best to be a good driver. I was like, okay, I'm going to try to not sin, you know, be a good driver, not be a bad driver. But I had no idea if I was transgressing or not because I didn't know what the law was. Uh, Turns out later I was. Um, I thought in Germany that there weren't speed limits. Um, That's just on one highway, not the whole country. Um, So I got a letter, uh, an email uh, written in German, which I did not understand, but it had numbers that seemed to indicate I was going 93 in a 60 or something like that. Kilometers an hour, not miles an hour. Um, There might have been instructions in there on how to pay for that. But it's in German, and if anyone knows German, I might be an international fugitive. You can come help me out later, see if we can get that taken care of. Anyway, that's something similar to what Paul's getting at here. Um, Not being an international fugitive, I mean the part about the law defining sin. I know what being a good driver and a bad driver is, but I don't know what breaking the law is until I've been given 
the law. And and a similar thing is happening here with uh, the people of Israel. Why then the law? It was added in order to define transgressions until, only until the offspring, the family line, who is Messiah, should come to whom the promise had been made. The law was put into place in order to define what sin is until the beneficiary of that last will and testament could come and inherit the promise. So the law was temporary. Good, but temporary. After first service, someone told me, it sounds like you're talking about a splint on a broken leg. Good, but you don't wear it the rest of your life. And I think that's a good analogy for what Paul is talking about here. The the point of the law, the point of Torah, was to preserve the people of Israel intact until the Messiah could come. Because a group of people, for instance, let's go back to the driving analogy, a group of people who cannot agree on what good driving looks like or can't agree on what bad driving looks like is very much, I should say, is no different than a a group of six-year-olds playing bumper cars at a carnival. And the natural outcome of that is self-destruction. Eventually, everybody's hurt and crying when your only like, way of thinking about what to do is be good, don't be bad. So when Torah comes in and sin is defined, when law-breaking or transgression is defined, once it's defined, then it can be dealt with. Once sin is defined, it can be pointed out and dealt with, not fully, And not finally, that's what Messiah comes to do, but long enough for the time to be right, as Paul will say later in Galatians, for the time to be right for the Messiah to come. So why the law? Well, the law was put into place in order to hold God's people intact until the Messiah, which was coming through Israel, could come and then free them from themselves and from the law. To summarize it, Paul Paul is saying that the Torah law was given only for this temporary purpose, to clearly identify sins so that the people of Israel could deal with their sin and avoid self-destruction long enough for the Messiah to come. I mean, it's almost paradoxical because in order for the promise to come, Israel has to remain intact. But if there's no law, then Israel will self-destruct. But giving them the law will also ensure their eventual destruction, as we saw in verses 10 through 14. All those who are under the law are under a curse and deserve death. It's a bit of a paradox, but the law was required to keep the promises on track, but the law could never be enough on its own because eventually it would have killed the promise if Messiah hadn't come. This is, this is what Paul's arguing here in verses 19, 20, and on. So he anticipates again their next question. If, if Torah is only ever going to destroy us, well, then does that mean the law is actually contrary to the promises of God? And he says, certainly not. It's the strongest way to say, no, don't even, don't even think about it. Because if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. So, in other words, and, and hypothetically, you know, a, a law or a set, or a set of regulations or a way of life could be constructed that would actually deliver on the promise to give life, well, then of course your status is one of the, the righteous ones. Your status is part of Abraham's family. It could come through your faithfulness to that, 
those regulations, but it's not possible. It's not possible not because the regulations are bad, but because the material that the regulations that Torah, the material that Torah has to work on is fatally flawed. I mean, the material is us. The reason Torah could never give life is because Torah was working with dead people. It doesn't matter how loudly Torah yells at us or any other law yells at us to walk straight. If we're too crooked to walk in a straight line, we can't do it. And it doesn't matter how often we're reminded we're not walking in a straight line. If we can't walk in a straight line, we can't do it. You can't make beautiful furniture out of rotten wood. It doesn't matter how good your tools are. There's nothing you can do with it. You can't make a straight board out of a crooked tree. The problem isn't Torah. The problem is us and what Torah has to work on. That's why Paul has been insisting over and over and over again that it's actually the Messiah's perfect faithfulness in keeping Torah that breaks through the curse of the Torah law itself on our behalf. He just said in the verses before this that the Messiah, Jesus, kept Torah perfectly and deserved all the blessings of obedience, but instead took all the curses of disobedience on himself so that the blessings of obedience would come to us, those of us who see his faithfulness and respond with faith and faithfulness of our own. That's the point that he comes to in verse 22. So scripture imprisons everything under sin. Everything we try to do is in this one storehouse or prison house called sin so that we all realize that the only way out of this is through someone else's work on our behalf so that, verse 22, second half of verse 22, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, one of the key things to know in order to read and interpret Galatians well is to recognize that every time you see the particular phrase, by faith in Jesus, or by faith in Christ, or by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, the Greek behind it can legitimately be translated in one of two ways. Uh, either, as the ESV does here, uh, by faith in Jesus Christ, or because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. If you were trying to say one of those two things, you'd use the exact same Greek words to say it. It's the context that helps you understand which one it's supposed to be. The first one, by faith in Jesus Christ, implies that whatever is happening is happening because of my faith in Jesus. The second way implies whatever is happening is happening because of Jesus' own faithfulness to what God called him to do as the one who fulfilled the vocation given to Israel. For my money, I think the, the second way of taking those Greek words makes more sense here in this verse. So in my scripture journal, I crossed out by faith in, and I replaced it with because of the faithfulness of. Uh, and, and here's why. If we leave it as it's translated, which is a legitimate translation, I'm just saying it's not quite as clear. When, when we leave it as is, it, it sounds like all this happens so that um, those who have faith in Jesus Christ would be given the promise as people who have faith in Jesus Christ. It makes Paul kind of sound redundant. When what he's been arguing all along is that the promise could come to us because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, it could come to those of us who have faith in Jesus Christ. 
So the way then I read the verse, it's, it's all this happens so that the promise, because of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe, those who have faith in, those who see the faithfulness of the Messiah and respond with their own faith in Him and their own faithfulness to Him. Because Paul's been arguing all along that what, what brings Jew and Gentile together into Abraham's one family and therefore together into one church at one table is that they both see the faithfulness of Israel's Messiah, Jesus. They see him keeping Torah perfectly. And his faithfulness on their behalf draws faith out of them. And it's that faith that brings them into Abraham's family, like Abraham, the man of faith, we saw a couple of weeks ago. It has nothing to do with keeping Torah themselves and everything to do with faith in Jesus' faithfulness. So, what does all that have to do with us? You'd be forgiven for kind of reading through this section and sort of glossing over it. Like, I cannot remember the last time I was tempted to become Jewish. Um, so, Paul, I have no idea what you're saying and why it applies to me. Ooh, I like this verse, that those, you become the son of God by faith. That one's good. And, oh, he took the curse for us. That one's, you know, we, we sort of can pick out a few verses that we like from this passage that seem to apply to us. But what does this have to do with us? I think Paul would argue everything. It has everything to do with us. And it all has, it has everything to do with what kind of a story and exactly what story you think you are part of, right? Because the story you think you're in decides who you think you are. You don't have to be an expert in philosophy of narrative identity or the psychology of embodied, embodied narrative identity to know like Paul is saying here, the story you think you are in decides who you think you are. That's why he's trying to convince these Gentile believers in Jesus that they are in a different story than they thought they were, a bigger story than they thought they were. You have to see yourself as part of the story of Abraham by faith. If you don't, you won't know who you are, where you came from, how you got here, what you're supposed to do now, where you're going next, and why it matters. If you tell yourself the wrong story, you give yourself the wrong identity. Uh, one biographer of the Apostle Paul uh, summarized all of his ministry, all of his teaching by saying, basically, Paul was doing this. He was teaching non-Jews to think Jewishly. And he was teaching non-Jews and Jews alike to think in the Jewish way as radically modified by Jesus. And the reason he wrote letter after letter after letter explaining all of this was because this involves nothing short of the hardest conversion of all, the conversion of your imagination. What story do you think you're part of? What story do you think you are in? Because we all tell stories about ourselves, and we tell stories about ourselves to ourselves. If your story, the story you tell yourself is something like, well, it doesn't really matter where I came from or where I'm going. All that matters is that I look out for number one right here and right now. Well, then that story decides who you are. 
survivor, a loner. You're cold and hard. You've suppressed the parts of yourselves that, yourself that wants to open up to other people, to be included, to trust. Because whatever story you think you're in decides who you think you are. Or say your story is, the story you've told yourself about yourself over and over and over again is something like, you know, I've, the whole point of my life is to try to impress the people I care about. That's what it means to, to be me. My life is defined by impressing the people I want to. And I've tried and I've tried and I've tried and I've never quite done it. You know, whether it's your parents or a boss or a teacher or a professor uh, or a pastor or whoever, you're like, I've tried my whole life and I, I've never quite lived up to, I've never been able to impress the people I want to. The problem must be with me. And so you just keep going, trying harder, climbing the next rung, trying to get somehow grab that feeling that somebody you care about is looking at you and saying, I'm impressed. Or you could have a very similar story. You've tried and tried and tried to impress the people that you wanted to impress, and, and you could just never quite do it. The problem must be them. And that story decides who you are. You become resentful and bitter, resentful of them expecting so much of you and bitter at yourself because you keep wanting to impress them even when you know you can never impress them because they're broken and there's something wrong with them. And you become just as enslaved to the person you're rebelling against as the person who's trying to please that person. Uh, you're still consumed and uh, obsessed with them. You're either a good worker or a rebel, a, a loyal soldier or an outcast, you know, a true believer or a disappointment. Because the story you th- you're in decides who you think you are. Or say your story is something like, Every person who was supposed to love me has left. Parents, grandparents, siblings, teachers, doesn't matter who, everyone who was supposed to love me left or left me or left me alone. What happens if that's your story? Well, and you spend all of your life you know, desperately cling to anyone who shows you any sort of love or affection or attention or whatever, but paradoxically, you can't ever rest in that affection because you believe deep down they're going to leave. And so you're paranoid you're going to do something that's going to force them away eventually, and the weight of your desire for them to never leave eventually crushes them to the point where they leave. They couldn't take being crushed under you anymore. Now, there's all sorts of good stories and all sorts of bad stories that we tell about ourselves. The, the point is, whatever story you think you're in decides who you think we, you are, and we are all in a story. We can't not think of ourselves in terms of a narrative. Who am I? Where did I come from? How did I get here? Why am I here? What am I supposed to do? Where am I going? And does it even matter? We have to be able to answer those questions for ourselves, or we have to get a prescription for some sort of pill that will keep us from asking those questions. Those are really our only two choices. I guess if you can't get access to the pills, then you go to something else. But, you know, we all self-medicate, so... 
But what if, what if this, what if this were your story? What if your story was, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm messed up, I'm screwed up, I have rebelled against the love that created me, that the God who created me out of perfect love, I rebelled against him, I didn't even know I was rebelling against him, that's how screwed up I am. The New Testament word for that is sin. But, and I have no idea why, I did nothing to deserve it, but God loved me in my rebellion so much that he, he literally gave himself in the person of his son to, to earn the blessing that I don't deserve, take the cursing that's mine, and, and give me the blessing. He, he did that for me, and I don't understand why, but I see that, and how can I not respond but, but with faith, but with believing? That, that's incredible. And yet Paul is arguing the story doesn't end there. That's the beginning of the story. That's not the end of the story. The rest of the story goes on. He says, and look, because I have responded to Jesus, who it turns out was the Messiah of this whole family that God had chosen to use to set the world back right after our first parents, you know, screwed the whole thing up. That's why I'm a rebel. After they screwed the whole thing up, God said, I'm going to use this family. I'm going to set the world back right. I'm going to do it, first of all, by setting each of you individually back right with me. And then together, we are going to set the world around us back right so that ultimately one day, not through our own efforts, but when he brings heaven back down to earth, the whole world will be set back right. That's, I have no idea what makes me, you know, worthy of being part of that story. It's probably just my unworthiness is the only thing that makes me worthy. But that's, that's my story. If that's your story, then who are you? If that's your story, who are you? Do you know who you are? Because if that's your story, you are a child of God. That can never change. You're loved by a father, a father who abandons no one and will never abandon you. If that's your story, you're empowered for a task. You have a job to do, and doing the job doesn't depend on you. It's not your power in the first place. It's his power. It's his power working through you that accomplishes that task. If, if that's your story, then you're called by someone who never makes mistakes and doesn't misdial. And he called you on purpose. If that's your story, you've got an inheritance coming. You are part of the family that will one day cover the world and inherit the whole world. That's who you are. You've got work to do. And your life is going somewhere. And it has a reason. And you are part of the only building project in this world that will last into eternity. I don't know about you, but that sounds like a better story. That's the story I want to be part of. That's the story that Paul is arguing here to these Gentile believers in Jesus. He's saying, look, you are not part of this story of be good, keep Torah perfectly, and God will welcome you into the family of Abraham. You are part of this story of through the Messiah's faithfulness to keeping the Torah, your responding faith marks you out as part of that family. You are now in and together we are setting this world back right. And that is absolutely critical for them to understand because 
The story you think you're in decides who you think you are. And if Jew and Gentile are together going to see that they are in a bigger story and that it's a story that is bigger than their differences, their ethnic differences, and the way they've been taught to come to God or the gods or whatever, then they're both going to have to get on the same page about what story they are part of. Because we're all part of a story. And there's only one story that actually frees you to be human instead of making you subhuman or sacrifice parts of your humanity in order to live that story. There's only one story, as Paul's going to go ahead and argue in chapter 5, that makes you free. And it's this one. So, what, what's, what story are you in? What story are you part of? Are you Godzilla in a Christmas play? Are you a child of God, brought into the family of Abraham to be part of God's great mission of setting the world back right? What's your story? Who are you? Do you know? Well, let's pray. Father, over and over again in this letter and in other places in Scripture, we read that you are inviting us into a story bigger than our lives, and you are inviting us to fold ourselves into your your bigger story of fulfilling the promise that you made to Abraham to put this world back to rights. Father, we know who we are because you have told us whose we are and who we belong to. And so we pray that uh, in the reading of your word, in the, the expression of our love for you through music and the working out of our faith in our day-to-day lives, um, we pray that you would continue to remind us that we belong to you. And because we belong to you, we belong to your story. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.